Take our Bibles up at this time and read from the prophecy of Isaiah. We read from the first 17 verses of Isaiah chapter 7. The word of the prophet, the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, Ephraim standing for Israel. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. They were afraid. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoke, smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Within sixty-five years Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test or tempt the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, and your people, and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah." Thus far we read the prophecy of Isaiah, the word of God to Israel in the 8th century B.C., the word of God to us tonight with regard to the sign of Emmanuel, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We need to remember that Isaiah at this point, is on the king's mission. And that is the king of the universe's mission. He's just met with the king, if we are to 
trust the chronology of chapter 6 and 7, that chapter 6 comes shortly after chapter, or chapter 7 comes shortly after chapter 6. And in the prior chapter, we read of a vision that God had given to Isaiah of himself on the throne on the year that King Isaiah died. And it was so holy and so awesome, this vision of the triune God. And Isaiah was given a mission at this time. This time, Isaiah, who responds to the call, who will send, who will, who will, whom shall I send and who will go for us? In chapter 6 and verse 8 says, Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he was told that this would be his mission. Number one, to harden the people of whom he was, uh, to whom he was to speak. He was to say to them, <clears throat> Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then Isaiah at this time said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, and so on. But then in the midst of that, in this calling, that he was on the grievous task of hardening the people of Israel at that time, Isaiah is reminded that there will be a tenth. There will be a tenth in it, verse 13, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So Isaiah is on the king of the universe's mission. He's a prophet under orders from God with his awesome task of hardening those who go by the name of the people of God in Judah and also of saving, but so that it would only be a tenth, a small portion, a remnant who would be saved. Isaiah is now in chapter 7, our text, our text chapter, executing this mission. He comes to wicked King Ahaz, the 8th century king of Judah, and he brings the word of God so that Ahaz might be hardened in his inveterate wickedness. This is the purpose of the mission, even the purpose of his saying that he ought to ask for a sign either in the height or in the depth, to harden this wicked king. This is, in fact, the king's mission on which Isaiah is for the rest of his ministry. And it will be fulfilled, both the hardening and the saving of God's people, in the announcement, especially throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, of a son, of a son of a king, even of a son in Judah, and a special son who is the special son of God the King, the eternal Son of God, Emmanuel. This is our text. After all, when the sign is that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, this will also be the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9, when he describes the fact and prophesies of the fact that there would be a child born, and unto us a son would be given, whose name would be called Wonderful, and so on. This is the ministry of the prophet Isaiah long ago, 
centuries before Christ came. It is the ministry today of ministers and of churches that have been with God to behold him, the King of kings, the thrice holy God before whom angels themselves tremble. We receive our marching orders from him. It's to go forth with the gospel message of the Son, that wonderful Son born of the Virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus. Both to hearten and to save, this is the message, and this is the prophet of the message that we should have, that it would further us on the mission of the ages, as sovereign grace you are saved, to declare the Son of God, Emmanuel, the wonderful Savior of sinners, regardless of whether people will not receive him or not, he is the God of salvation who comes to save his own. So let's consider the sign of Emmanuel. And let's consider, first of all, what sign is given, this mysterious sign of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. And then that this is to harden those who refuse. And finally, that this is to save a remnant who will be given the grace to believe. A sign is given here, and a sign is given even though it's not asked for. He has, refuses to ask for a sign, either in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or under the earth, but God gives him one anyway. And he gives one especially to the house of David. It's as if he turns in our passage from Ahaz, who's saying, I'll not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And so God, through the prophet, says, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? That in response to Isaiah's being so hypocritically pious and not wanting a sign, not wanting to ask a sign, though he's been commanded to ask for one. A sign is given. A sign shall be given. And the sign is of a special child who was born of a virgin. There are many different interpretations and theological skirmishes with regard to the identity of this son who's born and this event that this virgin would conceive and bear a child. There are many skirmishes, I say, among the conservatives and liberals and everyone in between trying maybe to be a little bit of both, a little bit respectful toward the word and and a lot of it usually liberal or critics of the word. Some will say that the virgin here is simply a a woman and could refer to a married woman, whether she has children or not, and so that an event is only described here as a woman bearing a child. This child will be called Emmanuel, maybe because it's a sign simply that God is with his people in no special way, even as the God is always with his people. But there's nothing um, particularly special about this woman's, this married or unmarried woman conceiving in the normal way, bearing a son who would be a special son, who would point to Jehovah with them, but not the son of God. Oh, beloved, there is uh, a case that could be made that virgin here, Amana, 
it could refer to someone who's an ordinary woman who would conceive in an ordinary way. <clears throat> but in the usage of the Scripture, and that's how we interpret these words that are not used so much, in their usage, it is um, evident and quite clearly evident that there is reference to um, virgins who are unmarried and who have never had sexual relations who are these virgins who are the daughters of Zion. In fact, in the Septuagint version, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, there is a word specifically that's given in the Greek that can only be translated virgin. That is, a woman who has never had normal relations with a man. And so the reference, according to the fathers, was 70 brilliant and conservative theological scholars in their translation of the Hebrew into Greek, that this is indeed a reference to a virgin who is truly a virgin in that technical and wonderful sense of the word, she's going to have a child. In fact, the Hebrew itself lends us to think that this virgin is special when it says it speaks of the virgin. You note that in your Bibles, I have that in my New King James, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's a special woman who would conceive and bear a son and whose name would be called Emmanuel. Besides, if this woman were just to give birth in an ordinary way and this child's name Emmanuel wouldn't mean much except that God was with them, and we see this in the giving of this special child, um, then there wouldn't be much to say about this being a sign. But the uh, prophet is called to say that there is a sign in this virgin conceiving and calling his name Emmanuel. And besides that, we are to behold this virgin conceiving and this sign of her conception in a virgin birth. So, there is everything that lends itself to our understanding that this is a wonderful sign of a miracle conception never known then or would be known except in Messiah's birth of a virgin conceiving. Normally it takes a man and a woman. And uh, we know that. We know that from everything we we know about conception and the birth even of animals takes two, but this is remarkable among the sons of men. Besides that, the child is called Emmanuel. The child is called Emmanuel. And this is, of course, the only, uh, the only reference it can be to is to the birth of Jesus in the fullness of the time. Note Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 1, the angel appears to Joseph and calls him Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, note this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and then the quoting of our text, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us or with us God. 
This is the prophecy of Christmas. Here is the first of the prophecies of Isaiah with regard to the birth of the child. Even Jesus would be the child that's given and the government is upon his shoulders and his name is called in that other place in chapter 9, Wonderful Counselor and so on. But here, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And God with us, not just alongside of us, but in the birth of the child, there is this becoming of something that God himself was not, Emmanuel in the flesh. And so, according to the eternal decree of God, God now does something big time, fullness of time, to show his people that he's with them and to be with them as God in the flesh. This is the miracle of Bethlehem. It's the miracle of, even before that, the conception, the holy conception of that child in the womb of Mary. And so we have the fulfillment of the prophet here. Emmanuel is this one, God with us in Jesus Christ. This one, in fact, of whom Isaiah would say later in chapter 8 and verse 8, he will have the land. It's striking that there's a prophecy here of uh, passing through Judah and overflowing and passing over and reaching up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings who will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. It's amazing. The land of Israel is said to be Emmanuel's land, land of the child who's born by the holy conception of a virgin. This is the man or, or is the God, Jesus Christ. And we know as well because he's born of a virgin in the extraordinary way and conceived by the Holy Spirit is nevertheless someone who's really man too. This seems to be indicated by verse 15 of the text. After his name is called Emmanuel, it's said that he eats curds and honey. Curds and honey he shall eat, and that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now there's lots of discussion about those two verses. As much as, if not more than, verse 14, verses 15 and 16 are some of the most disputed verses in their translation and interpretation in all of the prophecy of Isaiah. I take it to mean, however, that verse 15 is simply describing the humanity of Jesus in, a, in its revelation as a perfect humanity. He eats curds and honey. That could refer to his divinity, some think that this is a way of describing the, the, the food of the gods, but here it's applied to this God with us. He eats curds and honey, and unlike normal children, could simply refer to his being a, a truly human because he eats, and could refer to his perfection as human because he eats, and that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. He, he doesn't refuse the good and choose the evil, he knows to refuse the evil and chooses the good. So he's this perfect man-child, as well as this Emmanuel, this God 
with us in this human flesh. So that is an interpretation of verse 15. And it could very well be that this is simply uh, repeated here in verse 16 in the mysterious way of prophetic language. Before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Meaning that the Syrians allied with Pekah of Israel will themselves fight to their own destruction and they will not overtake Ahaz and Judah because God has his favor upon the house of David. That could very well be what is the prophecy here. It also could be, though this is somewhat uh, surmising on your pastor's part and others, that the reference in verse 16 is to the child, not the child who's born, but to the child who's in the arms of Isaiah. If you look back at verse 3, the Lord had said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jacob your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Ahaz, or uh, uh, Isaiah is called to bring his son. Now his son is a sermon and a sign all by himself. His name means a remnant shall return. Sheer Jashub, his son, means a remnant shall return. And he's a little son, he's an infant. And it could very well be that there's a sign then of Emmanuel in verses 14 and 15. And then the reference is to this son in the arms of Isaiah, who is a sign that before this child is of discerning years and knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, your enemies, they will be forsaken by both her kings. They'll start fighting each other. Pekah and uh, reason the king of Syria, and they will be destroyed. However it is, there is focus on the son of God, Emmanuel, here, who is the sign of all the signs that God ever gives. And this ought to be our focus as well, and from here on in, we focus on that. The son who is born of the virgin, whose name is Emmanuel. Now this is said to be a sign, and of this we speak. The sign is to be given. Ahaz has refused the sign. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. But God says, that's wearisome to me. Your unbelief is wearisome to me. I have told my prophet, ask for a sign, Ahaz. Ask for a sign yourself from the Lord your God, either in the depth or in the height above. In other words, ask with regard to any phenomenon that you can think of in the stars, in the sun, in the moon, or underneath, somewhere and below. Ask for something to happen here to indicate that God is going to be your God and save you from your enemies. Ahaz, however, who has other plans and other uh, ones to confide in than God, doesn't want to ask for a sign. You see, he doesn't want to be obliged to God. He is here acting out, as we'll see, 
his whole life of unbelief and denial of God. At this time, however, God says, no matter, I'm going to give a sign anyway. And praise be to God, he's given this sign to those people long ago and to us today. It's a sign. And signs in the Bible, whether they're miracles or not, signs that God gives, and he was into giving signs in the Old Testament, were to confirm himself and to confirm his faithfulness and his truth and his promises. And this is exactly what this is here for. God, you see, has a counsel to cause to come to pass. He's the God of the eternal decree, and his counsel has been, I'm going to save a people, and I'm going to save them in this Son. This is going to be the sign that I am fulfilling my word, the word that I've spoken way back in the garden. There's going to be a child, and he's going to stomp on the head of the devil so that there will not be the devil getting his way on this earth, but God getting his way through this wonderful plan of a child. There's a child that is promised to Abraham so that in his seed shall all the nations be blessed. This is the child. And so God here, by this sign, even of the miraculous conception and then birth of the child, is reaffirming everything he's ever said. And as we say from this pulpit all along, God has only one word to say, and the word is Jesus. And only one message to bring, the gospel of salvation in him. So this is a sign of God and his word and of his grace. Sinners don't ask for it. God gives it. Here is the truth of the sovereignty of the grace of God all by itself. And throughout the pages of the scriptures, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God, and there's none that obeys God when he says, seek a sign. They're to seek a sign. There's none in the New Testament age who who keep from seeking a sign. They want a sign. See, everything's backwards. Remember when the Jews came, they came seeking a sign of Jesus, who was himself everything that God ever signified, staring them in the face and doing miracles before them. And they want something more. The point is that God gives when men don't want to be given unto, don't think they need to be given unto. And this is no sign of weakness on God's part, but kingliness. And that's what he's doing here. He's establishing that he is the king. Isaiah 6, king of kings the absolute monarch of the universe, the monarch of kings themselves. He's not afraid of them. They have their plans. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21, verse 1 is here being played out. Ahaz, wicked king, Pekah of the wicked nation of Israel, Confederate now with reason, king of Syria. God is king over them all. He gives a sign. He gives a sign to the house of David. It's striking here that 
part of the plotting of the, not of Ahaz, but of the kings of Reason, Reason and Pekah, was to take away the royal line. I don't know if you caught that in our reading. King of Syria and Pekah, they confederated, they got together, children, and they said, let's go up against Judah and trouble it, and let's make a gap in the wall for ourselves. That's the first thing. They want to destroy the holy city. But then this, and let's set a king over them, not of David's line, the son of Tabal, whoever he is. You see what they wanted to do? They wanted by this, as the devil always wants, to prevent a son of David from being established on the throne. They wanted to prevent by this, and even though they probably didn't know what they were doing, but the devil did through them, to prevent the promise of God from coming to pass that God had made to David in 2 Samuel 7, for example. When God said to him, and the Lord tells you that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed, your children after you, who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, David, your house, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever In a single move, in a single plan, the confederates of Syria and apostate Israel wanted to undo the promise of God. Let us set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Let us be rid of this line of David from whom it is prophesied there will be a Messiah. Let us rid ourselves of any of the promises and presences of God in that nation. But God says, I'm going to give you a sign. And I'm going to prevent those wicked kings from annulling my promise and disestablishing the kingdom that he set up on the earth. God, you see, is presented here as against the devils. The devils led by the devil, the prince of God deniers, who's always been attacking the sun, just like he attacks you, beloved, and me. But it's all because he cannot stand the son of God's love. Messiah tries to prevent the birth of Jesus, cutting off the promise in the Old Testament and then cutting off his life when he's born even. Remember that? The slaughter of the innocents, as we say. Herod, wicked King Herod, would have all the baby boys born, and there's great grief at that time. 
And God calls his son down to Egypt to call him out of Egypt to further the type of his wonderful promise. A sign is given. And it's given to harden the refusers. That's my first, uh, my second point here. It's given to harden those who refuse the sign. Remember, this is Israel's or Isaiah's mission. He will not go to the right or to the left of this mission. The mission is set forth in no uncertain terms in Isaiah chapter 6. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, let they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. That makes Isaiah miserable. He says, how long, O Lord? And then he answers until they're utterly destroyed. Amazing. He's here in his first mission. His principal mission is to harden those who go by the name of the people of God. Like Pekah, the king of Syria, or the king of Israel, but here especially Ahaz. This is where it's important to know something of the history of Ahaz. just want to read for you something of his history. Ahaz was wicked to the core. Second Chronicles 28, hear this of Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He was a king of Judah, of David's line. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He was an idolater and an image worshiper. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom Hinnom, in the dump where there was sacrifices to Moloch made. And he did the same thing. He burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Here was a true devil in Israel. In fact, beloved, Ahaz is, or here's a devil in Jerusalem, I should say, in Judah. But Ahaz, in fact, will be the occasion, and his apostasy will be the occasion, not only for the departure of Israel, for their going into captivity, but it will be the beginning of the end, as it were, for Judah. This seems to be described as complete end of all the people of God in the rest of the chapter 7, in the utter desolation of the land, and also in the end of chapter 6, when the land is utterly desolated and the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So there's this terrible terror of a king, a king of terrors, in Jerusalem and Judah and among the people of God, leading them astray, away from the promises of God, away from godliness and true spirituality, away from 
Jesus Christ, the promised one. Ahaz has been called the father of unbelievers. That's something. Whereas his son, Hezekiah, good king Hezekiah, might be called among the kings of Judah the father of believers. Here's the father of unbelievers, Ahaz. And it's not surprising that his sons, the Jews of Jesus' day, were those who lived and rejected Jesus and who did the opposite of Ahaz. He didn't ask for a sign, and he should have. They asked for a sign, and then they shouldn't have, because Jesus, the fulfillment of every sign and every promise, was staring them in the face. To the Jews of Jesus' day, it was said, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, And this is because the root had become corrupt. And Ahaz, this father of unbelievers, was this terrible apostate one who even confederated with the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, who would be used of God to destroy Pekah and also uh, reason of Syria, but who was so... Trusting in Syria, something that even Pekah didn't want him to do, but he was doing it anyway. And later on, he would worship the Assyrian gods. And when Tiglath-Pileser came through on his commitment to destroy Ahaz's own enemies, he patterned the worship in the temple or in, in in the place of worship in Jerusalem after that of the Assyrians and their gods shut down the temple and started worshiping these, setting up these idols on the different street corners in in Jerusalem. It it was terrible. An idolater, children to the fire, an unbeliever, a, a hypocrite who even says at this time, and Isaiah says, ask for a sign, I'll not ask, nor will I tempt the Lord. See how pious he sounded? And all along, he just didn't want any confirmation that God was God. That was his motive. I'm not going to be obliged to God. And, in fact, God knew that. And when God said through Isaiah, ask for a sign yourself from the Lord your God, either in the depth or the height above, God knew that he wasn't going to give a sign Like that, he'd give something far better. And Ahaz himself would have been confounded by this. The sign of Jesus, you know, beloved, that's something that's neither in the height above or in the depth beneath. It's not of this earth. It's of heaven. Look as you may and try to understand as you may, comparing things natural with things spiritual and things spiritual with things natural, and you can't get the virgin birth and the holy conception and this thing of God with us, great, this mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh, something that God gives in the sign of his Son is of heaven. So we're led... Not just by the Christmas carol, but by the Holy Spirit 
to say, what child is this? What love is this, this love unknown? My God with us. And so, Isaiah was called to harden the unbelieving Ahaz. And the prophets after Isaiah would be called to harden the unbelieving of the people who went by the name people of God. And so Jesus, as well, when he came, he came and it was to harden the unbelieving Jews in their unbelief and to save his own. This is, in fact, the problem with most of the religious people of the day of the Church of Christ. They're missing the sign, really. This is a sign here, after all, of God who will get all the glory. And so much of Christendom, there's another kind of glory being looked for. The glory that signifies that Jesus is more than a gospel savior, maybe. He'll save us from government oppression, maybe. He'll save us from this tyranny of a certain party that we don't like. He'll save us in all the ways that the higher critics think we need to be saved so that there's social justice and so on. Beloved, here's a sign of the true God and the true salvation and the true Savior. And it's all about this one who comes and the world does not understand it. And those who would believe by themselves and, and imagine the kind of God they'd want to believe are mystified by this one who comes. And he comes not a sword, not with a sword loud clashing or two or twenty or with disciples who on his behalf will take out the swords and baptize the nations by the edge of a sword. Here's the one of the cross. This sign is a sign of everything that has to do with the humiliation of the Son of God to atone for sins, to satisfy the justice of God, to make us right with God. That's called reconciliation. Nothing to do with any other way to heaven than the way, the truth, and the life of this little one who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of sinners. The gospel is not only, however, for the hardening, as we preach as well, for the hardening of nations, as Isaiah's was not, it was to save the remnant. That's his little boy. A remnant shall return. Shear Jashub. A remnant shall return. That's the book of the Bible. God saves a remnant. He saves his own from among the earthly Israel, the earthly church. And so there's this hardening and there's this sad aspect of the mission that 
We are, according to 2 Corinthians, to a savor of death unto death, but the gospel preaching is the savor of life unto life. And there's people refusing to do what God says, and God says in our context, believe, repent, and believe. And if you leave the church, make sure you repent and believe quickly, lest you be hardened. And God calls his own from them to believe. The sign is given. The Son is given. The Holy Spirit is given. And grace is given. So we preach. And that's what we do here, beloved. And that's what we're going to do all Advent long and all our history long. However, God will keep us. And we pray it's till the day that he comes. United, faithful, godly, lovers of God and lovers of that sign of Emmanuel. We're going to preach. And we're going to preach regardless of what people say of that, how they say we're not really able to relate to everybody because we have such an unbelievable Savior of unbelievable holiness representing this thrice holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, with no compromise. We represent that in preaching and in living. And people say, oh no, not popular. But we say, it's to God's glory, no matter what. Well, beloved, we don't need a sign anymore other than the scripture. In fact, that's where all of this is. The truth of the coming of the Son, the truth of Bethlehem. You won't find that gift under a tree, yours or mine or at Macy's. You find it under the cross. Let's go to the cross at Christmas time. Let's go to the Word. Preach it, live it, and be glad. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless us. We can be humble before the sign and believe. We ask, Lord, that you would truly have mercy upon us. Our unbelief is great, but you know, Father, our heart of hearts. You've worked in us a desire to respond to gospel things in a gospel way in a good news sort of way, as those full of sorrow for sin, but joy in the Holy Ghost will not be denied joy because we are those who will not deny Jesus. So we pray, Father, come away from this worship glad, full of happiness for the message of the gospel, though it be for the destruction of those who persist in their unbelief, is for the salvation of those who but for the grace of God would go that way and who are graced indeed of God to choose the other way, even the way, the truth, and the life conceived in a virgin's womb, born of that virgin Mary, is crucified and suffers and dies and rises again. Our Jesus, your Messiah, your Son, were without end.
Amen.